This episode of the Game of Thrones podcast by Bald Move is brought to you by HelloFresh. For a total of $60 off your first order, yes, that's $20 off your first three boxes, visit HelloFresh.com slash GOT60 and enter promo code GOT60. Hey everybody, welcome to the Game of Thrones podcast by BaldMove.com. We're the officially unofficial podcast for HBO's Game of Thrones television series and the officially official podcast for the Gods of Thrones book that my co-host and I have co-written. I'll introduce myself. I'm Aaron. And I'm Anthony. And again, we are here to talk about the primarily the books this, this month. And we're going to start shifting our focus from the book that we wrote, Gods of Thrones, although that still be... Surprise, surprise, a a theme that we weave throughout this podcast, uh, and we'll also be answering your questions about the books and the religions in Game of Thrones here in a bit. Uh, But again, George Martin's latest book, not not The Winds of Winter that we were hoping for, but The the Fire and Blood, which aims to be a history, a complete history of the Targaryen involvement in Westeros. dropped on the 20th and Anthony and I received our books yesterday and I received my book very late it was after nine o'clock when it arrived um so I've only gotten into about the first hundred pages or so Anthony I understand that you've gotten how far into it yeah I I got the ebook and so I wanted to get at least as far as the uh the teaser chapter that uh George put on his not a blog and so that mm-hmm. got me about 30 ish percent into the ebook. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, we're going to be talking about our first impressions of that because we're also kicking off next week a three week cycle um, where we're considering fire and blood in detail. We're going to have some other podcast hosts. Uh, I just conf- uh, confirmed Kim Rinfro from the Insider is going to be joining me for the third segment of that. Uh, if you'd like to follow along. Uh, we are essentially going to split up Fire and Blood into three parts. Part one, we're going to read up to, but not including Jaehaerys and Allison, their triumphs and tragedies. For part two, we're going to cover the material up to, but not including the dying of the dragons, uh, Rhaenyra triumphant. And then part three, we're going to finish the book. And we're going to be talking about just things that kind of jumped out, things that might be portentous for future game of thrones uh song of ice and fire material and just you know just discussing a book format and hopefully you find folks will will follow along and you'll have some interesting and informative things to say too uh i would be remiss if i did not remind people since i got several pieces of feedback asking when the paperback would be uh available that the paperback is now available it uh I, I said it was going to be available by the time I listened to podcasts. That turned out to be true last week, and it has been available for about a week now in the US Amazon market as well as many international markets, including French, Spanish, German, and Japanese. Uh there's many others. That's only about half of them. So you can go to Amazon.com or dot DE or dot FR or dot JP or where whatever your your local flavor of Amazon is and uh punch in Gods of Thrones and find our book. And it's available in both ebook and paperback version. Uh, annoyingly, they're not linked in Amazon yet. They should be one product page where you can select the format, but Amazon thinks they're two separate products, and I'm working with their support to solve that. I would put the links to both in the show notes so you can easily find them. Uh, also, if you have been a holdout 
you know, you're, you've been waiting to get your copy because you want to roll it into your sh- uh, Christmas shopping. Good news, because we're having a 20% off sale for Black Friday. From Thanksgiving through Cyber Monday, that's November 22nd through November 26th, our book is going to be, both versions, the ebook and the paperback, are going to be 20% off for those days only. So if you want to get a, uh, a paperback version for a family member, a hard-to-please Game of Thrones fan, now is your time to do it to lock in that 20% savings. And you know, Anthony, I, f- I, felt, I feel like we undersold the book saying it's a stocking stuffer. After I shipped dozens and dozens of these copies out because now essentially all of the signed and international orders are out for just the books we're just waiting on the t-shirts and and hoodies at this point those things are bricks it's not a stocking stuffer it's the it's the cornerstone of a fortress of presents that one could construct under a christmas tree oh you make a a strong argument uh aaron it's the vanguard it's the vanguard of the gifts (laughs) If I were to buy, let's say, four or five of these books, could I? You, you think I could do like a uh, use this for a, um, I don't know, a book group, a reading group? Would that would it work for a, a group like that? You think it it would? Although with five of them together, they might merge to form some kind of Voltron esque <laughs> force. They might they might have all the spiritual and Game of Thrones energy that went into writing it might animate them, and, and God knows what'll happen. I've I, I've got no more than three on my desk right now, and I'm comfortable with that amount. But if you want to roll the dice and get five or six and get a reading circle going, uh, that that's that's definitely something that you could do and, and report the results back. So you ordered the paperback the day it was available. How long did it take to get I did. you? Yeah, just as a, uh, a little experiment. It only took uh, it only took a couple days, maybe three days at most. Because your paperback reviews are already in, and that's entirely possible they're not fraudulent because there has been adequate time since last week for people to get it and actually have it in their hands and read it. Uh, I wanted to give one out here, uh, shout one out, Nathan, who wrote a very, very nice review for us on our paperback version. It says, this is an incredibly well-sourced and researched fan-made book. You can really tell that both the authors know what they're talking about and share a love for the source material. The book combines Aaron's particular brand of humor with Anthony's knowledge of real-world religions. It creates a perfect companion piece for anyone who has ever wondered if there are real-world connections to Martin's work. So thank you for that review, Nathan. And if you'd like to help Anthony and I promote the book, the best way you can do so and, and the easiest way to do so is to take a minute or two of your time and go to Amazon and leave us a review. And it's super easy if you've if you've actually bought through Amazon, if you're not a Kickstarter, uh, because you know, you can just like go to your orders and click review this thing and there you there there you are. We're at thirty three reviews right now. We're shooting to get to fifty because that's the kind of amount where things start to bubble and happen. We're also working up the list of bought with fire and blood, which is exciting. Um, you know, being linked being linked to that and a lot of people buying fire and blood uh, would only help our book sales. And you know, that's what we're that's essentially what we're trying to do. We're trying to make money. You know, we we spent a we spent a lot of time and effort on this book. I think the book looks incredible. With Chase Stone's art and uh, Steve's type typography typesetting, uh, the book looks amazing, and it's got a lot of valuable and informative content. And again, it's it's a great gift for anyone that you know is into Game of Thrones and they're hard to shop for. I guarantee they're going to find this book interesting, informative, and hopefully funny too. Uh, now, we're here to talk about uh, Fire and Blood, and again, next week we're going to be covering the first third of the book in up to and including Jaehaerys and Alison, their Triumph and Tragedies chapter. 
Week after that, we'll be considering the second third, which is up to, uh, but not including the Dying of the Dragons, Rhaenyra, Triumphant, and then the third part we'll read through the end of the book. Anthony, we got this thing. What's our first impressions of it? Well, I mean, I spent most of yesterday reading it, you know, in, in I, quite, I, I mean, I'm enjoying it, and I know that I am enjoying it because I like this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, I know that this is not going to be everyone's bag, uh-huh. uh, but uh, but I you know I I've been I've been enjoying it. What about you? There's a couple things I surprised. I was surprised at the heft of the book. Like I was expecting something more along the lines of World of Ice and Fire, like a big like reference size book with lots of illustrations. Um, and what I got is about 700 page solid tome and there are there are lots of illustrations there are like you know the kind of the black and white charcoal sketch kind of things that you've seen like if if you've read the hedge knight any of the hedge knight series a lot of those types of illustrations are in there um so i surprised at the heft and you know the the straightforward presentation but also as i started reading it it's more of a narrative like it it definitely feels it's it's in this this valley between the books themselves, where you actually have POV and dialogue, and the world of ice and fire, which is um, definitely it, it's kind of written that same voice. But this, since it's telling the story of the Targaryens, like everything kind of happens and and flows as a, as a as a solid narrative and a filled in. Yeah, but we should we should make sure that say this is not a novel. It, no, it's it's written as if it is uh, a, a maester. Uh, who's a historian of the period he's in world you know the narrator is in world and it's sort of just a straight targaryen history so it, yeah. it, it's it's going to span thousands of years yeah um now the, the other thing i was a little surprised is it doesn't it doesn't really include the pre dragonstone westeros stuff like the the it it begins with the history of the targaryens essentially when daenerys the dreamer uh, had the premonition of old Valeria being destroyed by fire and her family taking off, selling all their lands and moving everything to Dragonstone, right. uh, which happens a couple of hundred years before Aegon is born. Aegon the Conqueror is born, and it kind of yeah, it kind of fast forwards through. You know, essentially this guy beget this guy, this beget guy beget this guy, and then this guy is Aegon the Conqueror. And roll up your sleeves because here's where the the kind of narrative begins. So right, and we do get we we get a bit more on Aegon here than we would in let's say World of Ice and Fire. Mm-hmm. Um, it's still a little bit distant. Uh, you do get I don't know dialogue on every third or fourth page or something like that. Yeah, uh, but uh, you know this is this is a book for for you know real sort of that upper echelon of fans that just really want that uh deep cut content um i will say that my expectations were really lowered over the last two days because i've seen some advanced reviews come out and this book has kind of gotten savaged a bit um and i, I really think a lot I, of re- I haven't looked at any of those and a lot of the reviews seem to be boiling over especially at the fact that this guy has the audacity to write 700 dense pages of this history that and yet you know the winds of winter languishes somewhere 
in his Lotus whatever software that he uses to whatever crazy WordStar per software he uses to write with still. Um, I, I don't it, I mean, that's obviously a, like all criticisms essentially are, are fair. It's whatever people think about it. But um, it seems like the average viewer is incapable of just reviewing this in a, ba- in a vacuum. Um, and to be fair, it, it's this is like it, it's. I see in your notes that you're you're comparing it to the Cimmerillion. Uh, well, I think that I I guess the question is, your enjoyment of the book is going to it re- it really does depend on your relationship with the genre of a of a sort of a backstory history, mm-hmm. and I I remember when I was uh, I don't know in high school hearing that oh well. You might have enjoyed The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, but uh, don't touch the Silmarillion because uh, it's really like reading the Old Testament. And that was sort of like the, the knock on it. <clears throat> and then but the Old Testament is the exciting part of the Bible. <laughs> right. Well, when I got into college, I realized, you know what? I actually like reading the Old Testament. So, yeah. um I, I like, you know, so if you're into Homer, if you're into, you know, these these long epic prehistory sorts of things, uh like the Silmarillion, uh this this is the book for you. And so I guess my my gripe here is that if you are going to if you're if you're walking into this book thinking um, well, I'm already upset because I, I would rather be reading Winds of Winter than, of course, the review is going to be negative. Now, there are negative things to say about the book, but uh, I, I think it should be uh, judged on its own merit. Um, and part of this is Martin's fault because he's painted himself into this corner where uh-huh. anything he produces now that isn't the Winds of Winter is going to have this critique, right? Right. What about you? I mean, let, let's. Let, I'm just curious about your history with this kind of genre. Um, you've previously described yourself as a lore whore. Uh-huh. This is certainly lore, right? So I'm the I'm the I'm the nerd in high school that devoured Lord of the Rings and then immediately plowed into Cimmerillion and still was not slaked. And I started working my way through some of the other things that Christopher Tolkien had packaged from his father's writings and right. I started to rapidly lose interest after that because you know like the hobbit is just an easy almost a kid book it's like a, it's like the first harry potter and then you shift gears into the lord of the rings where uh the first part of it has that same tone and then right about the the barrel white sequence uh, it shifts and 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 the ring rays show up. It the you know it starts to get chilly and frosty and very adult. And then the Cimmerillion is a, another kind of like change in a narrative tone. Where yeah, it's like holy crap, I'm I'm in with these celestial spirits singing creation into yeah. <laughs> being with their father, their all father who's existed before time. And it's like it it um, was was jarring but very interesting. And then you get into Baron and Luthien and. Uh, so so yes, I like this, and I thought this was. Uh, I mean, because I, I started reading this book at like eleven, thir- almost midnight, because the book didn't come till nine fifteen. I had the e- ebook too, but for some reason it wouldn't deliver to my Kindle. It was a really frustrating day yesterday. Uh, I had to go watch Creed for Bald Move. I got home. Uh, by the time I got done publishing that, 
it was almost midnight and I still stayed up till about one thirty or so reading it and underlining stuff. And it wasn't like I was forcing myself. I, once the first couple pages, I, I started getting engrossed into it. So it's more, it's more engaging and less dry than I was fearing from the reviews. Right. Okay. So one thing, one criticism I think that could be leveled with legitimacy here is that when I just, just reading the first 50 or so pages, I was often wondering, is this a direct copy and paste from World of Ice and Fire? It turns out it's not. I mean, there are, it covers a lot of the same ground, but it really kind of adds more details. Right. Uh, and, it's the illuminated uh, version. I couldn't quite tell what was lifted directly from World of Ice and Fire and what was new content. And so I, I was constantly wondering about that. And I didn't want to just get out both books and just do start doing a synoptic comparison. I thought right. that would ruin, ruin the experience. But I could see people being upset with the idea that, okay, now you're repackaging old material – you know, to, I don't know, for another cash grab or something like that. In, in the world of Ice and Fire, the Targaryen history is about, would you say, 75 pages of material? Yeah. Yeah, I would, yeah that, that would be a good – I don't know exactly, but that would be a good guess. And I would – in this book, 700. So – and I, I – there's a couple of facts that I thought were new, and I actually started doing some searching to see if it were. Like there's – well, there's an incredible detail about the yellow toad of Dorne right. that I was like, I surely would have remembered that. And right. I, I, so it's like there's a bunch of additions and embellishments and things, and we'll, we'll get to that here in a minute. But yeah, I think, you know, I would say it's a seven to one new content versus old. But then again, how much of it is just you take a single sentence and you blow it up into a paragraph? Did you learn anything new or did you. You know, like a lot of the dialogue when it's like, um, you know, Aegon would give a demand to this guy and he'd be like, well, there was three maesters present. So we recorded the dialogue and it's <laughs> it's essentially five lines of pretty stilted. Are you going to kneel or not? I'm not going to kneel. This castle's badass. So be it. Your <laughs> castle's going to melt tonight, buddy. And it's like, you know, where in, in World of Ice and Fire, just be like Aegon gave Heron the black an ultimatum, which was ultimately rejected. So... I, like I said, I I want to go back and make sure that if you're not the type of person that would appreciate reading the Cimmerillion or the Old Testament, I'd be very leery about buying this book because this is not a Song of Ice and Fire. Uh, this doesn't have a POV. This is a a fake history book. So if you're not yeah. the type of person that would read real history books or have not enjoyed reading fake history books in the past then this book's not going to be for you. But if you're like the type of person like me who used to look forward to getting the Planeswalker's Guide to each new edition of Magic the Gathering so you could actually see what all the card art meant and represented, and uh, then then this is the book for you. But I again, I don't want people to think that this is an enthusiastic endorsement for anyone who's enjoyed Game of Thrones, Ice and Fire. This is a qualified endorsement if you if you really like the lore and really like getting details, or if you're like us and you're in the business of sifting through those things that, that come up with some new theory crafting, then I think you'll be excited. And there are some exciting bits that I've already got to. May or may not mean anything. It's hard to tell, but there's some things that seem like they're pretentious in uh, in the first uh, 100 or so pages of the book. I think that, two, I mean, I think that 
it, there are two kinds of purchasers for this book. One would be the the the, the people like us who just we're you know we're there, there's more there's more Game of Thrones content, so we got to have it. You know, yeah. So there, yeah. there's that kind of purchaser, and then there's the purchaser that's thinking, all right, Christmas is coming up, and I know that my loved one has read everything that George Martin has out there. And I know that they probably don't own this book yet. So maybe I'll get this for that, that person for Christmas. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, I, I, I don't think it will disappoint um, mm-hmm. if for either of those purchasers, um, unless you're just already really pissed that it's not Winds of Winter. <laughs> Uh, yeah. So you kind of have to bracket that out. Before before we get talking about the content of the book, I want to do one more kind of meta analysis. Uh, I saw a theory on, I think it was r slash A Song of Ice and Fire, where people are like, this this reads like something George had to get out so that he could, it's like riding a bicycle. Like, I'm going to write 700 pages of stream of consciousness Targaryen history and kind of like garden the f- shit out of it. And use that to get back into the groove so that I can take this momentum mm. of like low stakes. Like this is this is this is like a, just a funsy that he wanted to get out uh, so that he can then get on with the business of writing winds of uh, uh, winds of winter. Yeah, I could get I could get behind that because as someone who's who writes a lot, I know that that sort of living in the world however whatever process it takes to get in the world and get your mind sort of moving in the right direction thinking in the right patterns that's the process you embrace and if it turns into another book then that's great but i have a a little spin on this i think that george has figured out that he's going to make most of his money by hbo residuals uh-huh. With that in mind, he's thinking, okay, well, they are going to go ahead and write this prequel without me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, so HBO has some some pre Game of Thrones uh, a, a series in 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 play, mm-hmm. and I kind of feel like he's he's exerting a little bit of influence, saying, okay, well, here's the definitive history for mm-hmm. that world. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to if you're going to please the fans, you're going to have to interact with my official history as you create th- these these prequel series. And mm. I and it could be that he felt like I got to do this now because they're going to start production on these soon. I I will say that here's my grand unification theory. Because Martin stopped putting out his Winds of Winter updates in the winter of 2015. Right. That was the last kind of update where he's like, things are looking good. I think it's going to be this year for sure. I think that's when he decided, fuck it. I'm going to do Fire and Blood. And I don't think he's worked on the Winds of Winter at all until like the last month. Because he's starting to give interviews where he's admitting to struggling with Winds of Winter. I this is This is me pulling stuff out of my ass. But it feels to me like three years ago he had basically decided, you know what, fuck it, I'm, I've got the mother of all writers block. I'm going to do the thing that that that's really itching for to get mm-hmm. out of me. I'm going to write that, and he's taken three, like essentially two plus years off of Winds of Winter to give himself the 
you know, like maybe he wrote those maester sections of World of Ice and Fire. It's like shit, that was fun and that was easy, and it just kind of flowed. And it's like I, I I'm going to do that, but I, as a fan. I can't read this as any other way than he has just taken a two, almost three-year sabbatical from Winds of Winter, and now he's gone back to the table. Boy, I also don't like what I'm hearing from that because it's not – he's coming back from the table not getting interviews of like, yeah, things are really starting to crack. It's like, yeah, I'm yeah, there's some real problems I'm having with Winds of Winter. <laughs> that's my that's my dour, pessimistic kind of reading of the tea leaves. What What do you think of that? Yeah, no, I could look every criticism against George. He's brought on himself. I, I shouldn't say every criticism, but a lot of the criticism he's brought on himself. I guess the only thing I can say is, if he's if he's struggling to get it right, do you want it now or do you want it right? Yeah, uh, and but you know, it's it's a can we get it it's right now? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I every Christmas time I'm a little bit I'm a little bit more pissed that, uh-huh. that I, I don't get to take you know uh, you know three weeks and just sort of immerse myself in winds of winter. Mm-hmm. Hey, I have a a, a different uh, question, different kind of question for you. Hit me. So so you've read the first hundred pages or so. Did you find any details? That you're thinking, oh, that would have been really nice to include in volume one, uh, or we should really try to include that in volume two of Gods of Thrones. The things that jumped out at me so far were some of the stuff involving the Iron Islanders, because as you know, I'm I'm in the process of writing a chapter on the the religions and cultures of the Iron Ironborn, and and George has gone all in on Lodos. Yeah, uh, he's you know that that's like a, a couple of notes in World of Ice and Fire and a one off joke of last year's uh, Game of Thrones, and it's not like he, they spill oceans of ink on this guy, but yeah. He's he's definitely this um, very very interesting guy who says you don't know Lodos after Aegon dies right the whole Seven Kingdoms starts having dreams of being Seven Kingdoms again like well yeah this guy with his dragons whipped their ass but you know this new king is his name really Anus well I was gonna ask you that so it's spelled A E N Y S yeah and and so you got a, a few options. But anus is the one. I mean, it, <laughs> it could be anus. It could be anus. It could be anus. Uh, I I don't know how to how to pronounce that. That. But it's A-E. not Daenerys, and it's not Daenerys. It's Daenerys. It's an anus. Anus. I think this kid guy's name. This kid's name is this anus. Poor, this poor. I mean, how could he be a strong king no. with that name? Especially when his big brother Aegon or Magor, dual wielding yeah. dark sister and. <laughs> Blackfire, apparently. Uh, yeah, it's 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 unfortunate. This poor but- kid. This poor kid ha- never had a chance. His parents named him Anus. And there's a there's some evocative language here because he's like you know all these these boys who grew up in this age of the the peace of the dragon's peace, but they remember the tales of their fathers dying and reclaimed glory and like all seven kingdoms are like hey we're gonna take a shot at this anus kid and Iron Islands is no different and the priests of the drowned god got together and kind of nominated a a godly man uh, and put it to driftwood crown on him. his name's Lodos. And his plan was to summon the Krakens and the storms of the Storm God and and unleash this on the Targaryens. Uh, when that did not come to pass and the Krakens didn't didn't answer his call of their banners, 
he filled his robes full of stone and walked out to the sea to say that he was going to converse with his father to figure out what to do. And thousands of the Ironborn followed him in there. And there's a very evocative uh, paragraph about these corpses, these crab-eaten corpses washing up onto the the stones of uh, the shores of Old Wick for decades to come. But he also, later on walks out of the sea and says, uh, hey, I'm back. And I haven't gotten far enough to see what... But but there's something interesting. There's something interesting in, uh, in a kind of Christ spending three days in the... the I think so. The bowels of the that, earth thing there. I think that there, there's some kind of Jesus typology going on. That here, I'll, I'll read, I'll read the, a little of the, the section here. So, um, not all Ironborn accepted his claim, however, on Old Wick... Under the bones of Naga the sea dragon, the priests of the drowned god placed a driftwood crown on the head of one of their own, the barefoot holy man Lodos, who proclaimed himself the living son of the drowned god. So that sounds a little like Jesus. Mm-hmm. And was said to be able to work miracles. So he say he says he's able to work miracles, but his big plan is to summon the Krakens. And of course, the Krakens don't come and they get their asses whooped. So then, like you said, he fills his robes with stones and goes down to the sea. And then years later, we hear that in the Iron Islands, another priest had walked out of the sea, announcing himself to be Lodos, the twice-drowned, the son of the drowned god, returning from visiting his father. So you could take that in a couple ways, right? You could You could take that as, okay, well, this is a maester writing, so clearly... This is so. This is another pretender. This is just another messianic pretender, um, and uh, or you could take it as no. This is what happens. They, you, he went down, talked to his his father, and now he's back. Um, so yeah, so that's an interesting, and I think probably with a little nod to some of the messianic pretenders around the time Jesus was a messianic figure. Um, but did he really perform any miracles? I, I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not right, sure. right. Um, another thing I thought was interesting. I, I don't. I think we 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 definitely touch on this in the Faith of the Seven, and it might even be something I think you touch on a little bit in in the Dragon Cult, uh, the 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 Targaryen Dragon Cult chapter that you are, are is coming in, in Volume Two. But there's a lot of interesting passages about. Aegon and the performative nature of his faith, yeah, like the that's fact right. that be, the, like it's it's legend has it that before he set upon his conquest of Westeros, that for the first time in his life he knelt at the Sept of the Seven and and asked for the Seven's guidance. Uh, right. Also, he was very sure to make sure that the Starry Sept, which was the seat of the faith before you know the Great Sept of Baelor, moved it from from Hightown uh, or Old Town rather. Uh, that he would always make sure that he visited that once a year and that that was one of his chief advisors, the High Septon, that he would ask for his blessing. And and it seems like there's a little quid pro quo because when Anus tried to marry his siblings, which is what yeah. Targaryens do, it says right. that the faith condoned or at the very least ignored the marriage of the conquered and sisters, but was not willing to do the same for their grandchildren. And the Starry Sept issued a series of, of fiery condemnations of the unholy abomination mm-hmm. that represents. Um, it To me, this reads as Aegon stroked 
the seven because he knows where the the lay of the land is of this new land. He's a very wise, uh, like like a Genghis Khan type. That's like, hey, why would you worship dragons? We worship dragons. That's our thing. You guys do this faith of the seven, whatever. Yeah, I'll I'll do that too. And the faith kind of looked the other way and, and supported his right. rule. But but I think the faith like has their little ambitions too. That I mean, maybe there's something symbolic about the seven kingdoms that that pleases them, or maybe. Um, when the seven kings were all bickering and squabbling, they had a more outsized power than when this external conqueror came and kind of enforced peace on everybody. But they saw the weakness of Anus and went after <laughs> and went after him just like everybody else did. So yeah, they wanted to take their own poke at Anus, but the yeah, they t- <laughs> <laughs> the the thing is the thing I, I think quid pro quo is is a good way to say it because um, the the high septon under Aegon. He seems to have this really close relationship with the king, mm-hmm. and it could be that the faith of the seven is never more powerful than right. when the kingdom is united, because Aegon is willing to just really give give the High Septon and Old Town a lot of influence over his decisions, and I think he knows he shrewdly he knows. Look, if if I don't get if I don't get the religious leaders to accept me here, there's no way they're going to accept a king who marries his sister or both sisters in his case. Mm. Um, yeah. And I don't think that any of his children or grandchildren quite get how important that is. And in fact, just for the first third of the book, one I, I, th- I would say the dominant theme is the Targaryens against the faith, the faith militant. Um, you right. know they they have they have to sort of unify the kingdoms and they, they there's a lot there's a lot to that, but the reoccurring theme is do they will they accept an incestuous couple and the product of incest as being the next king, and and the chief people that are against that are the faith of the the, the religious leaders of the faith of the seven. Well, see what I don't understand about that because I think you're right. It's true. Uh, because they they also kind of portray some of these later Targaryens like Anus as as also being naive and um, too trusting, like not not as shrewd as their as his father before him. Because you know he right. makes a grave mistake of essentially strengthening his brother's claim to illegitimate claim to the throne by giving him both of the Targaryen swords and saying, "Oh, I'm not the warrior; you're the warrior." And um, but what I I think there's a little bit of conflict between what you said about the faith of the seven's power never being greater than when the seven kingdoms were combined versus why are they backing? Like, it seems to me the faith of the seven, if they believe that would definitely try to back a Targaryen. They might differ which one they want to back, but like, why would they just turn their backs on the Targaryen secession and try to plunge the realm back into a civil war? Um, To me, it's, it's more of like, uh, I, I think that my read is that the faith felt weakened. Like, yes, they're getting lip service paid to, but they, you know, they're no longer able to broker peace and do power deals between the different kingdoms. It's there's just one thing that they can interface with, and that's the Targaryens, and they're not satisfied with just having that lever of power anymore. Yeah, I think that I, I think that the the image that we're getting from, from at least the first third of the book is that. Uh, it, it's not like it's not like the people of Westeros were thrilled that that they were being conquered 
Um, and then after that, they're not thrilled that their king has married both of his sisters. When Aegon flies into Old Town and finds that, oh, the gates are open and they're ready to just endorse me. I don't have to fight at all. And the High mm-hmm. Septon has fasted for seven days. And mm-hmm. and he's seen a vision that the, that the whole kingdom is going <laughs> to be united, right? This is, th- this is sort of the beginning of this tight, tight friendship between Aegon and the High Septon that I think that they both know is strictly political. Mm. Um, and, uh, and, and they know that they're, they're scratching each other's backs. And at one point, uh, Martin writes, they were kind of surprised, you know, the people, the, the faith of the seven and everyone else, they were kind of surprised that the, 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 the high Septon accepted this because it was, you know, it was considered taboo or abomination or whatever to, right. uh, to have an incestuous union. But because that relationship was strong, everyone else kind of fell in suit. But once those two characters are gone and that relationship mm-hmm. is gone, I think as we've seen so many other times in Westeros, you know, you got this king and a lord who are best friends. And then once th- those two principal players are gone, mm-hmm. um, the relationship between houses uh, is, you know, is weakened as as a result. Right. And right. I think that uh, Aegon's children never really figure out how important the faith is until Magor decides, well, I'm just going to go to war with the faith and kill as many of the faith militant as I can and just subdue them. That, that's Magor's uh, solution to it. It's probably what Tywin would have done if he were alive to see the rise of the faith militant too. <laughs> Yeah, it, it very well could be. I thought it was interesting. One of the one of the uh, the the themes that we're playing with in Volume Two is that Aegon is he's not pious. He's not a pious man, but he knows how important these political alliances are. And Aegon creates an alliance with the the High Septon. So it's for him, it's a political move to do that. In the world of Ice and Fire. It, it doesn't talk about Aegon's crown. In this book, it mentions that even his crown has little images of the of the seven on it. I thought that was interesting. He, he's he's paying so much homage to the faith of the seven that even the crown that he's wearing has an image of each of the representatives of 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 the seven gods. There's also there's two crowns. The one that he gave himself when he first crowned himself king and he came to Westeros, and that's the the Valerian steel with the red rubies. Right. And then the the se- that's the one that the the seven gave them when they anointed him and made him king. Right. right? That's right. So there's almost like a, an attempt to there's there's a little like, like an attempt to control there too. Right. Like oh yeah you're 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 our guy but you're also going to wear our crown. Just just also throw out a note. There's a little bit of theory crafting we do in the Faith of the Seven chapter about you know if if the Faith of the Seven is an, is engineered by uh, the Maesters. And I think it's super interesting that the seat of learning is also the seat of the religion right. of the Empire. It seems almost too perfect that the Maesters got together centuries ago. It's like, you know what this land needs? This land needs a unified religion that we can control. 
and can be kind of like the gods can be our, our mouthpiece for our politics and our way of doing things. And here, oh, and by the way, the seat of power is going to be right in our backyard. And <laughs> I thought that's an interesting connection. Right. And then, of course, we find out that then what Megor decides that he's going to take the throne, he's going to don the Valerian steel with red rubies crown. He's going back to the old, so this, old ways. Yeah, this yeah. is sort of symbolizing, yeah, I, I don't need the faith of the seven to rule. I will rule simply by fire and blood. What else? Did, what did, Was there any details that you picked out that kind of changed your mind about uh, game, Gods of Thrones or gives you some ideas for volume two? Nothing. I don't think that changed my mind. I was uh, Honestly, I was a little disappointed. I thought I was going to learn a bit more about the rituals and the mythology of the Valerians, yeah, I thought we'd get a little a little chapter of Valerian history. It was only a few paragraphs leading up to the Targaryen evacuation. Right. We still don't know a whole lot about what these Valerians believed. There were a couple little tidbits. Like, for instance, uh, this passage here says, In Valeria before the doom, wise men wrote, A thousand gods were honored, but none were feared. So few dared to speak against these customs. And the the, the point here is that um, that if fr- from the maester's perspective, if you fear the gods, you're not going to uh, go in for incest because that's an abomination to the gods. But in Valeria, mm-hmm. from the Westerosi uh, maester perspective, in Valeria... No one really cared what the gods thought. There are too many of them anyway. And um, mm-hmm. and so you can basically just do what you want. And if you want to marry your sister to make sure that the bloodlines stay pure, uh, the gods aren't going to get in your way. So that, that I mean, but that's just a little tidbit. Um, we, we're not getting any kind of robust um, image of the this that belief system. The other thing that I thought was interesting that I didn't know before was okay. So the faith has the faith of the seven has rejected now the Targaryen um, right to the throne because of these brothers and sisters marrying. So instead of having a, a Septon marry them, the one two of the the brother and sister uh, married couples they decided to use a valerian rite they got married under a valerian ritual for marriage which at least points out that the valerians had rituals um for for mm. major life events uh, like marriage it wasn't just a mythology so i, I that, that mm-hmm. but again really really sort of just a skeletal understanding of what the religions were like before the doom it could be that the Targaryens were Valerian atheists, and they just didn't like, and they're they're the sole preservers of of uh, the culture, right? Like everybody else, all the other dragon lords died. So if Aegon and his family were kind of irreligious, um, and they came over to 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 Dragonstone, and then a century later converted to the faith for, out of a political convenience, it could be that for a lot of intents and purposes, the Targaryen religion and cultures or the Valerian religion yeah, was wiped that's out. that's right. And if Aegon is simply using religion for a, as a political tool, then there's no there's there's absolutely no value in keeping the rituals and the the, the mythologies of 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 uh, old Valeria. 
So, Aaron, you've waded at least into the shallow end of the book, but I'm curious if there's any details that would help you with any sort of theory crafting or anything that stood out as just really interesting content. There's two things that jumped out, I thought. One was with the, you know, trying to get Dorn to submit that there's this long and bitter guerrilla oh, war yeah. that the Dornish f- fought against the Targaryens that um, really bled them and really did some horrific things. Like, that's how uh, Aegon's beloved younger sister Rhaenyra died. Uh, it, it, they killed one of the dragons, famously. Uh, they cut the right hand off of Oris Baratheon, which forever kind of set him against the Dornish. And there's this detail where the king, uh, after the 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 yellow toad of Dorne, Maria Martell, who I thought the maester salaciously put in a parenthetical that she died a bed parenthetical while having intimate relations with a stallion, her enemies insisted, which is little shades <laughs> of Catherine the Great, right, right. Uh, and and maybe we get to because like that's she's kind of the opposite of Catherine the Great because she's presiding not over a, a period of peace and expansion and prosperity and enlightenment but a dark time of the kingdom but but whatever uh, that that the new king takes over the new prince of Dorne rather and he sends his princess to the, the Aegon's court and the king reads the sealed letter from her father that says from your eyes only Grace. And Aegon reads this letter stone-faced in front of the entire assembled lords and ladies of Westeros and flies off to Dragonstone to contemplate for 24 hours and comes back and accepts her peace terms. And no one knows what that letter says yeah. because he, 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 he destroyed it immediately after reading. And there's a couple of theories put forth but i feel like that's just begging theory crafting well it's interesting <laughs> because Aegon is just dead set against any any terms for peace that de- that doesn't include dorn's submission he's he's absolutely dead set yeah because everyone his remaining sister is like they killed our yeah. sister his best friends like they they took off my hands. They like, they, yeah. like everyone, and no one is counseling like peace. He's thinking if I say yes to this peace without their submission, my the love of my life died for nothing. And then he yes. opens this letter. We don't hear what the letter says, but after that, he's totally willing to just accept the peace on their terms. Mm-hmm. I feel like there's something. There's got to be other clues that Martin intended us to understand because the theories he put forward that there's like. This letter was written in the blood of Queen Rhaenerys, and he was ensorcelled. Like that seems ridiculous. Although blood magic is a thing, and then contained an unsigned contract with the faceless men, taking out a hit on him and his 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 children and his remaining w- sister wife. I, I mean, I'm that that would do it, right? Like you know, if Aegon knows the reputation of the faithless men and thinks that the Dornish would take all their treasure and everything dear to them and offer the appropriate sacrifice of material to that that that, that would happen, you know, what I'm looking for now is as I go through the other 600 pages of this book, is there anything that would give hint of that? Because that's such such an amazing little detail and such a mystery right. that Martin serves up for himself and for the, the universe at large that I, I, I feel like there's got to be something. There's got to be something to right. that. That's got to be important. Yeah, it's too, it's too tempting not to 
wonder what's in the letter. But he burns the letter. It's not like it's going to turn up later. No. So you're the only hope is that there is a there's a secret secret diary of this. There's a secret diary of Vicinia that she's recorded the, on his deathbed that he said something or other that, yeah, I mean, or, or like a, something from the Dorn side, like something from the, exactly. will come to light from the Dorn side that will, in the right light, you know, and this, you know, that's the thing about the theory crafting is that can get pretty intense and amazing. Uh, the other one I want to talk about is there's a detail when Aegon died that they made a big funeral pyre that was set fire by a dragon. And and they talk about the old king being fully armored, and he's burning on this thing, and he's gripping Blackfire to his chest. And the quote is, the Blackfire, the, the famous Targaryen blade of glory, was, was burned with the king, but retrieved by Magor afterwards, its blade darker, but otherwise unharmed. And then it says, no common fire can damage Valerian steel. Two points, this fire was set by a dragon, so right. it's not entirely a common fire, and if the blade is darker but otherwise unharmed, that implies that something changed it. I don't think it's just suit because you would not describe a suit and darkened blade as being darker. You just wipe it clean again, right? I think right. Martin here is telling us that some transformative thing happened. And perhaps, like to say, when we think of funeral pyres and Targaryens, the first thing you think of is Danny and Drogo right. and that giving birth to dragons. And he's saying something changed. Something changed, and famously, Blackfire is missing. Like it's been missing for right. uh, it's it, it's been lost in the midst of time. There's something I think to that as well. Those are the things that jumped out of me. Is like, ooh, there is going to be some kind of this is a hint of what's going to come. This is going to make sense in in retrospect. This is a clue that will allow us to unlock other things. Those are the ones that, ju- that jumped out at me. Well, the other thing is that um, we know be- through George's interviews that in order to now they didn't they didn't play with this in the book yet, but uh, we know from George's interviews that in order to hatch a dragon, there has to be a human sacrifice. Um, and jo- George has not directly said this, but he's he's been very coy about it when people ask him that uh, that question. Uh, to the I've never. That- I, I, that's that's actually that's actually true because, like I said, he's not actually confirmed that this is something you're inferring by his refusal to answer certain so, questions. So here's what he says: He, you know, someone asked him directly, like, "Does it take a human sacrifice to hatch a dragon?" Uh-huh. And he his response was kind of like, "Well, there are clues in the book, and if you read the clues, uh, mm, I don't think I'm going to answer that one." Right. Mm. So. That to me sounds like eh, we're getting close. We're getting hmm. close here. Um, so this is this is on a funeral pyre, and we have uh, un, you know we have dragon fire, and like you said, something about the properties have changed about this particular uh, item. So it's just kind of more more of the. the Fortification for this idea that something supernatural can happen on a um, on a funeral pyre related to dragons. Yeah, I'm curious because you've so, read you, you've read another 150 200 pages. Is because because clearly Magor is going to go on a, a long conquest, and Blackfire is going to mm-hmm. feature heavily in that. Is there any passages where they say something about Blackfire being weird or different or changed or? 
is it perhaps you understand that there's a maybe me- something changed in Megor himself that because he's yeah, possessing I, the blade now and well I didn't quite I didn't pick up on the the change of the sword I mean I remember once you said it I remembered but I didn't pick up it on it as significant mm. um, so I wasn't looking for that information I know that Megor decides to use Blackfire instead of Dark Sister. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, hi- that is his primary weapon, but I, I, I don't remember any other details specific to the sword. Okay. Well, that's something I'm going to be my ears perked up for. Anything else you want to talk about in our bear dipping their toes in the water of fire and blood? Cause I've got some feedback also to consider. Let's go to the feedback. Hey, before we get into the feedback portion of the podcast, I want to talk about our sponsor, HelloFresh. And I've drafted my wife, Cecily, into the podcast since Anthony, I don't think, has been able to enjoy any HelloFresh. Say hello, Cecily. Hello, Cecily. And we both had experience with the same meals. And I think we differentiate on what our favorites are. Really? Okay. Well, uh, HelloFresh, if you don't know, is a meal delivery service that shops, plans, and delivers step-by-step recipes and pre-measured ingredients so you can just cook, eat, and enjoy. And it's delivered right to your door in recyclable insulated packaging. And I appreciate that because everything that has ever been shipped to us in HelloFresh has been able to be recycled. HelloFresh offers unmatched selection. Make family dinners fuss-free with HelloFresh's picky eater, kid-tested, and approved family plan recipes. And I can attest to this because our 12-year-old son, Jack, is always begging us to make the Swedish meatloaf meal. And that's just the classic plan. That's not even the family-oriented one. He's got very defined taste thanks to HelloFresh now. HelloFresh invites you to discover the excitement of cooking. Feel confident when cooking HelloFresh with the simple recipes outlined on pictured step-by-step instruction cards. And that's important because if you're not into cooking, if no one ever taught you how to cook, it can be somewhat intimidating. And this uses very basic equipment. A lot of times all you need is like a pot and step-by-step color instructions. Everything's kind of pre-measured and pre-selected. It just tells you how to do it. How If you can put together a Lego kit, you can... In fact, Lego kits are way harder to, to do than HelloFresh meals. HelloFresh believes that cooking should be simple and convenient, not a chore. There's lots of one-pot recipes for seriously speedy cooking and minimal cleanup. In fact, many of the recipes take less than 20 minutes total time to prep and yes. cook. So many benefits to subscribing, so you can keep enjoying HelloFresh week after week. Get out of that recipe rut and start cooking outside your comfort zone by discovering new delicious recipes in each week's box. That's the biggest one for me because, man, I am sick unto death trying to think of things to cook for the family. Like After you've done it for years and years and years, it's like, am I really going to trot out this tired spaghetti or burrito night or whatever it is? Like Right, and you know, my favorite part about the recipes is that when I'm learning a new recipe, I will read through the entire thing and try to memorize it all because I need to remember that this step is going to come after this step. Right. They highlight it in advance for you. Makes yeah. it so simple. Now, let's talk about our favorite meal. I think I like the Swedish meatloaves as well. We spend a lot of time as Cincinnati natives at Ikea, <laughs> and uh, I think I think we did it better at home. Yeah, no, it's 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 if you've ever had the Swedish meatball meal at Ikea, this is essentially the 
Omega version of that. And it's so good. The mashed potatoes, so good. The the actual Swedish meatloafs. They even have a little tiny adorable jar of the ligonberry. It's not actually the ligonberry, but it tastes exactly like the ligonberry sauce. Right. So good. Well, that's I will, not even your favorite. No, I, I like the poblanos and pork tacos, which it's really turned me on to the whole poblano pepper thing. And I never would have tried that. Right. I would have been stuck in my burrito rut without HelloFresh. So, for a total of $60 off your first order, go to HelloFresh.com slash GOT60, GOT like Game of Thrones 60, 60, and enter promo code GOT60. That's 20 bucks off your first three boxes. Again, to get that deal, visit HelloFresh.com slash GOT60 and enter promo code GOT60. Those links and promo code are in the show notes for your convenience. All right, going to the feedback. Uh, you can send the feedback to Game of Thrones at baldmove.com, and we also have a forum thread for these uh, podcasts as well, and forums.baldmove.com. First up, Nate. Just want to say that I really hope that you and Anthony follow up and do the religion-based podcast that you teased on the previous Game of Thrones cast. I've enjoyed the back and forth you guys have had so far, but Game of Thrones, keep up the hard work. Loved the book. Uh, well, thanks for that feedback, Nate. I think, yeah, we have talked offline that we definitely want to do that. So after we get through the Fire and Blood, which is going to run us deep into the month of December, the question, I know Anthony's got some travel. I'm not sure whether it's something that we will come back to in January or it's something that we'll be able to get out uh, in, in, in late December, but it's definitely going to, going to get back together in the same location, have a drink or two, and, and, and talk, about, talk about religion. Because yeah, I actually good. unironically enjoy discussing religious and, and, and it's very rare that I get to have like a discussion with a religious person, especially someone that's thought so much about it and has, has been trained uh, in, in, and done so much research in multi-faith disciplines. And I, I, it's, I think it's going to be a fascinating conversation. And you, uh, you are committed to uh, bringing the booze, I will bring. Right? I will bring your – yeah, you can, you can choose and I'll bring it. Or I can bring a selection that I've got. Okay. That sounds okay. like a deal. Uh, so, so look forward to that. Uh, Ryan from Scani, where can one procure an autographed copy of your book? I I don't have a great answer for this, Ryan, because we unfortunately that was like a Kickstarter thing, and there's no way for us to sign the Amazon copies. Uh, so I will say that there's a limited amount of signed copies that we still have in our possession because we have more than we actually sit through the Kickstarter. And maybe there'll be a store where you can purchase something at, uh, you know, obviously an inflated cost because there's handling and all kinds of stuff that goes into that. You know what we could do? And we haven't talked about this, so I'm just kind of throwing this Mm -hmm. out there. We could do a uh, we could do a giveaway. Ooh. We could do like if I think I think something we should talk about it a little bit more. The idea of a contest is pretty cool, and also I'm I'm giving away some review copies to some of our you know podcast friends and rivals, and it'd be kind of neat to give away an autograph version so they can have a contest for their listeners. So like yeah, there's a couple ways, and also. Anytime that you know that I'm going to be appearing publicly uh, and I'm in your area, you bring uh, the copy of this book, I will happily sign sign it. So there's a couple of vectors to get it. But like right now, there's not a great surefire way to do it just yet. But we will discuss possibilities. Yep. Uh, Rob Eisenhart. In a recent podcast, you guys quoted Tyrion's famous, I am the god of tits and wine line. 
Will this yet unnamed religion be featured in Volume 2? Because that's a religion in which I could become a disciple. I'd also like to nominate Marjorie as the Queen Virgin Martyr for the religion. And yes, I do see Natalie Dormer when I read the book, and I don't think I need to expand upon this thought. Keep up the great work on your podcast, and I really look forward to this coming out in some kind of audiobook version and as well as Volume 2. Is God of Tits of Wine going to feature... In, in volume two, you know what I think that we're we're at, there actually is um, a, a few references to this particular fertility uh, goddess. <laughs> yep, is it referenced in volume two? At least I can say at least once. I don't remember. I don't remember in what context. Um, yeah. So what we're I mean we're going to have to go in in the next few weeks. We'll be editing and smoothing out some of the content for volume two. And uh, we'll be able to see how, how prominently this particular God features in, in that content. Um, I, yeah, I'm going to move on. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Allie wrote in uh, and said, or Allie said, after listening to your podcast last week, I saw this and she's particularly talking about our t- topic of the fascinating genitalia in the animal kingdom. Oh, and yes. the oatmeal.com did a comic on the anglerfish, the plight of the male anglerfish. And if you want to read it, it's theoatmeal.com slash comic slash angler, A-N-G-L-E-R. Uh, and it's, yeah, it's, just, it's a humorous illustration of exactly what I said, that these guys latch onto the female and literally become, they wither away and become just external genitalia for the, the female anglerfish. So... so- uh, so, uh, bringing you true you, facts you, about animal cocks here. Have you ever merging this topic to religions, Aaron? Ha, mm-hmm. have, uh, are you familiar with the term etiology? I'm and, well. Even if I was, I probably only saw it written in a passage yeah. you put in the book, and I wouldn't recognize the pronunciation because I'm Aaron, <laughs> and that's not my do. <laughs> All right, and etiology is a story that explains. The origin of something, or, or how something came to be. Ah, so 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 a, a classic e- uh, etiological element would be: How do we get rainbows? Well, you have to go back ah. to Noah's flood, right? Right, because uh, that's that's when the first rainbow came about. So that that's that would be an example of a, of a religious etiology. So I was talking with uh, an Old Testament uh, scholar that I work with, and she was telling me. That you've got this famous story of the man and the woman being created in the early chapters of Genesis. Right. In the second creation story, the man famously has to lose a rib. Oh, yeah. Yeah. God took a rib from Adam and fashioned the woman from it. Okay, good. All right. So what she was saying was that the word for rib is not specific to the rib cage, um, we could be talking about the bone from the male boner. Oh. And, and maybe this explains why animals have, certain animals have an actual bone that, that protrudes into their member, but humankind doesn't because human males lost that bone I gave it to during, the females. The, during the creation of Eve. Interesting. 
Actually, because it bothered me, I, I couldn't remember what that bone is called. It's called the baculum. Most most yeah. mammals, most placental mammals, have an actual bone inside their their penis that, and that aids in penetration. So this particular uh, uh, colleague of mine was saying, "Well, maybe you actually were seeing this question. Like the ancient mind is questioning, well, why don't humans have a baculum? Yeah. Uh, and so this is a story that's created in order to explain why." The, the the male penis looks the way that it does. Now, this is this was told to me in half jest. This is not a, a, a dominant scholarly theory, but I right. thought it was interesting because it relates in some way to what we were talking about. Well, so it's interesting because I remember like um, when I was doing some way back in when when I was doing some you know, just reading of Old Testament stuff. Uh, there's a lot of talks about Abraham would swear upon his thigh. You know, right, right under. Put your hand under, under my thigh, and that you're supposed to properly understand that they're essentially grabbing their junk and saying, "I swear, I, 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 I swear, in my balls that this is yeah. going to happen." But it's just been, right. you know, like that was too ribald or salacious for you know medieval translators, so they changed it to thigh. I think it's kind of funny that Abraham's kind of like gripping his balls and being like, you know, swear on these, <laughs> right. <laughs> This shows how, like, the you can see that they they changed the the you know the guy's cockbone to rib because they're squeamish about it. Well, yeah, I don't know if the ancient world is more squeamish than we are, but I think that uh, they haven't developed the variety of language in modern America. We have what fifty words for the male penis, <laughs> um, and even even more if you go to urbanthesaurus.com. dot com. Right, but. It's abs- you're absolutely right. There is a euphemism that's happening there when Abraham says, put your hand under my thigh. The ancient world would have understood that that you, that you there is sort of a grip on his junk that's yeah. happening. And I think – now, I, I haven't I, – I need to follow this up with a few people that know better than I do, but – I think it's because at that period uh, within Jewish life, there wasn't a distinct understanding of the afterlife, mm. uh, which which comes a bit later. So in these early texts, your best hope for long, you know, long life is 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 to live on through your your children, right? So to to allow someone to grab your testicles is is to say. My entire house, my my all of my children, my eternal life, as I live on through my children, I'm letting you hold that in your hands, and uh, and so I'm swearing everything I ever will be legacy wise, and I'm putting it right on the line here. So I, hmm. I think that there's something there um, to that particular ritual, uh, and of course it's it's. You know, to to us to us it, it it it's gonna seem a little sexual, but not not to them. I, don't, I I think that it has more to do with this idea that the most important thing I could possibly give to the world is the children that will live on after me. Well, I mean, have you familiar with the the neat translation, the the new English Aaron translation? Oh no! Uh, <laughs> I have to get myself a copy. He said, "Yeah, he it's actually translated as uh, Abraham saying, uh, swear on these nuts.'" So oh, I, I think that, that right? really makes it, it makes to, it clear. <laughs> I have to take a look at that. Uh, that sounds uh, very interesting. 
Uh, all right, that's great. Let's move on to Nathan W. from Pittsburgh. This is the next two emails are kind of kind of long. How um, many Nathans are there? Are, are all bald, bald move listeners named Nathan? Is that what's so, going on? So here? many, so many. They're the they're the faceless Nathans. Uh, I'm really enjoying the God of Thrones podcast. It scratches the Game of Thrones itch nicely in between seasons of the show and sigh between the books. I'm intrigued by the podcast to read the books for sure and dropping hints that I like it for Christmas. There you go. It's the it's the vanguard. It's the vanguard of gifts. Listening to you guys talk about Catelyn Stark and especially about her Lady Stoneheart aspect got me thinking back to when I first read about her resurrection. While there was no indication I can remember that she and or the Brotherhood would be heading to Winterfell, I guess I assumed at some point she would go there, either to try to assemble what she could of her family or just to brood from there and haunt the place. When Jon Snow was killed at Castle Black, I didn't believe he'd stay dead. In fact, I was pretty sure that somehow Lady Stoneheart would find her way there and pass on the flame that Beric Dondarrion had passed on to her. It would have to involve some kind of redemptive arc, though, because she was never friendly to John, and giving her life for him would be a pretty big stretch. Hmm. With me so far? Oh, yeah. I'm tracking. I'm tracking. Okay. Then I heard you guys talking about Catelyn and Arya and how they might interact if they met, and it got me thinking. Cat hated John, but Arya was very attached to him, so maybe Catelyn would bring John back in an effort to somehow help Arya, possibly to soften her or turn her away from the dark path she's on so she won't end up like Lady Stoneheart, or to atone for breaking her word to the mother, which of course is from the show-only story that Cat told Talisa about praying to the gods to get rid of John and then you know re- reneging on that when, when he came down with the fever. So then he continues that, when it became clear that Lady Stoneheart wasn't coming back, he was kind of briefly confused about how they would bring it back. But then, you know, obviously Thoros had the conversation with Melisandre, and that opened the door to bring him back that way. He closes, do you think this could be another divergence from the books in the show? I mean, the point is that John is brought back, so maybe the how isn't so important, but it might be the reason for Lady Stoneheart to exist. Hmm. What do you think? I like the idea of... The, in the book, it's going to be a lot more complicated. Uh, I think it's going to involve John emergency warging into Ghost because one of the things that George Martin likes to play with is, and, and you know, you, death doesn't make you better. It's not like Gandalf, the Grey, who, like in the epic rap battles between him and Dumbledore, he says, "Death doesn't make me die; it just makes my whites brighter. It just 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 improves your lot." George mm-hmm. Martin's idea is every time death occurs it takes a chunk out of you a chunk out of your soul a chunk out of who you are you start to forget who you are and you can't have that with your main hero so if you can avoid that by warging into a creature with your intellect and spirituality intact and then if your husk is reanimated and you can then jump back you can essentially avoid you can circumvent that that uh that that degradation right Mm. so I think it actually is an interesting idea that that Lady Stoneheart, as a way to atone for the, her ill treatment of John, and maybe as a way to bridge a gap with her and Arya, does give her life to save. And th- and we're also getting into uh, Grand Northern conspiracy territory, which is something I covered back in I think a season four podcast. I'll link it in the show notes. Where there's an idea that Lady, one of the things we know about Lady Stoneheart is she has the Iron Crown of the the King of the North. And she also has Rob's last will and testament, which is widely believed to include a statement that if if something happens to him, that John should become king in the north uh, until his his brothers come of age. And Lady Stoneheart, you know, bereft of grief, 
um, and and vengeance has these two things. Thinks her sons are dead and could, as a way to get vengeance, see John, you know, as as the strong leader, could could actually um, make him king in the north outright uh, instead of having to be proclaimed it like in, it goes down in, in season six. So. There's a lot of these kind of pieces up in the air, and and one thing that would tie it all together is is Lady Stoneheart breathing in him to the fire of life to bring him back. He wargs back from ghosts simultaneously. He's proclaimed king. Of the, like you can see, kind of how this stuff is all all fitting together. Does that does that make sense, Anthony? Or you got questions? Or I mean, there's a lot of moving parts here. Um, That's Lady very Martin. Stoneheart, right? It doesn't. I mean, you don't bring. Catelyn Stark back to life if she's not going to be important for the overall narrative. I mean, I don't think her her story arc is is over. She has to be re- reunited at some point with one of her children, I think. Mm-hmm. Um just to just to pay off that emotional investment. So, I don't know. I don't know how I don't know how Cat's going to be involved. All right, let's move on to our final piece of feedback. Russell W all the way from Australia. You guys are great to listen to. That's that's very nice of you to say. I found it interesting in episode one when Aaron was talking about he somewhat misses his religious involvement as it made his world kind of tick by, and it gave him a sense of belonging, and then the discussion went on to talk about how you read something in regards to Genghis Khan and how they couldn't believe that people would want to convert to their religion. I can relate a bit of both of these things. I'm an Australian, yet I'm a heathen. I practice the beliefs of the northern gods. He's following the old gods, Anthony. I assume he's talking about, like, Celtic or Norse? Norse? Yeah, I think uh, George has said that uh, that the old gods are built in part on Celtic uh, uh, spirituality and in part on Wicca. Wicca would be a modern um, iteration of some of this sort of tree worship and animism. Uh, and, uh, and I think a lot of people who are sort of um, nature worshipers, mm-hmm. I grew up in Northern California, so I, I knew a few of these folks. Um, that would consider themselves pagans in the sense that they're 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 sort of embracing sort of old school nature religion. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Russell continues. I get a lot of questions as why I believe in this religion in particular, and my simple answer to them is the belief itself. Humans are different yet the same to most things on the planet. We serve a purpose yet we have this distinct ability to comprehend the world in such a deep way that we look and seek to be guided in order to give within ourselves a higher purpose. Belief in something else often believes in belief in oneself. In a social setting, we also ask why a lot, which means a lot of questions. It may be, why did you do that? Or on a bigger scale, why are we here? Which having a core belief helps deal with a lot of that. When you combine the two, people will drift to a belief system in which they fulfill all these things and in turn get a deep sense of belonging. Game of Thrones is great with this because if you put the same questions to some of the characters or religions, you can understand what motivates them, what they're driving to achieve, and for what purposes, why they want it, etc. It can work both ways, for example. Tyrion, who is genuinely more of an atheist, may be more motivated to look after himself and his actions will reflect as such. Or his outlook may make him apprehensive of someone who is a deep religious uh, or deeply religious devoted, devoted rather, such as Melisandre. Uh, belief systems shape our world down to one's personal actions. Game of Thrones is no different, and I think you guys do great to touch on this. I mean, yeah, that's that's the book. Like that last pair, that last soliloquy he had is is the justification for the book. That yeah, thanks thanks for uh, iterating that pretty well, Russell. That, that's nice. 
Yeah. Do you have any comments on his, like, you know, some of this stuff is, like, treading on our religious podcast discussion, but I think as an atheist, I can say from that side is you have, you, you have to learn with, you have to be comfortable with the idea that any of these why, these grand why answers are essentially unanswerable or the answer must come from within. You have to provide a meaning for a life that's essentially meaningless, which is terrifying at first, but also pretty freeing in, in, a, certain, in a certain way, too. Um, do you want to talk about the other side of that equation, Anthony? Well, I, I think that humans, at our core, we are interpreters. So we are recognizing the world around us and the relationships around us and asking these bigger questions. And one of the crucial ways that we interpret what we see is we create stories about these things. Uh, you know, this is sort of a broad idea of what religion does for us. But um, to look around and think, okay, uh, let's let's start with basic particles and and talk about how um, how we got here from from these you know, these elemental forces. Let's let's tell the story of science. I think that that can, for people, be a religious move because we're trying to make sense of something using a grand story. Um, it's not too different uh, than what religious folks have been doing for a very, very long time. Um, and, of course, when we find these stories in conflict, we start asking questions about our own. Mm -hmm. uh, we start thinking, well, oh, you, you think – you know, you think the world came to being because uh, there was a guy with a big hammer. And I think the world came into being because there was a guy who uh, spoke from the abyss and, and ordered everything. Um, so how do we relate to each other knowing that we have two different versions of a creation story? And I think once we once we realize that, that there are other people who believe other things out there, it's just natural to start questioning the validity of our own story and 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 what how how does this function for me and my culture um and i think a lot of the cases in a lot of cases people don't recognize that something is religious until they see it in a different religion so that that's kind of what motivates me i i'm i'm curious um to sort of compare and contrast uh, different belief systems so I can figure out how religion works, how people think, but also to figure some a few things out for myself. Yeah, I mean, geez, I just want to get right into a religions podcast because um, I, I think that's so, – so, yeah, you know what? I'm just going to save it for that because we've already <laughs> – Somehow, every time I sit down and record this podcast, I'm like, boy, we're going to get like 30, 40 minutes if we're lucky. And now an hour and a half later, uh, we've got this we got this podcast. So I'm going to I'm going to save all that for the religion, the, the religious. So, topic. yeah, we'll we'll tease we'll tease the uh, the, the capstone podcast. And then we're staking um, out our territory that we're going to defend and attack. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good, good. Uh, right. I hope you have a vanguard. I hope you have a strong vanguard or five or six copies of the book when when you when you. I'm sit gonna down. be like gonna the Dornish. It. You're gonna show up, and I'm not gonna. <laughs> You're I'm just not, gonna, I'm gonna, gonna melt away. Gonna melt away, and then, totally then when I leave ghost the house, your armies, and then. <laughs> As as you're moving through the territory, you'll find that that your horses are dead because of poison. 
Yeah, there's this uh there's this really lot there's this line in the book about um you know, essentially Aegon shows up to Dorne and it's just deserted castle after deserted castle and he's kinda like he gets the sun sphere and he's like, All right, well, guess the land's been pacified. <laughs> and they they go back to the land and this the line is they had hardly reached King's Landing before the Dorne erupted behind them. Dorne's spearmen appeared from nowhere like desert flowers after a rain. And I'm like, that's a pretty sick line for a history book. <laughs> Yeah, every now and again, Martin can really turn a phrase. Yeah, but uh, it's yeah. it, it, this is fun stuff. It's really fun stuff, and and uh, we'll 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 continue having fun with it for as long as the uh, the bald move community will will tolerate us. Yeah, uh, and Fire and Blood out now in bookstores and Amazon dot com. Our book Gods of Thrones also out in at Amazon dot com. The links for both paperback and digital copy are in the show notes. That'll do it for this week. Again, you can send feedback to Game of Thrones at baldmove.com or on our forums, forums.baldmove.com. Anthony, thanks once again for joining us on this discussion, and we'll see you next week. Until then, I'm Aaron. And I'm Anthony. Later. Later.